Welcome back to the AEC Disruptors Podcast, your platform to help push the AEC industry forward. I'm your host, Christopher Dell, and joining me today is my co-host, Jackson Sensat. What's going on, man? Nothing much, Chris. Just trying not to burn alive out here in Texas. <laughs> That's a very relevant statement as uh, our guest today was uh, Mark Chin. He's a senior sustainability engineer at Skanska. And this was a really cool talk. Um, I, I reached out to him to talk about this idea of embodied carbon and reducing it on the job site. And I think part of why I went after that is I'd seen a, a statement that said our industry has really been focused, um, its climate change focus had been on operational energy um, consumption. So things like lighting and heating and cooling, but it was a less obvious source um, that's maybe even more important is this idea of embodied carbon. What did you think of the uh, discussion with Mark? I thought it was, um, you know, doing the research for it was eye-opening, you know, because when I think of waste and construction, I just think about, you know, how much trash gets produced on the job site, whether that be, you know, leftover material, Coke bottles, things like that. But I never really thought about the amount of energy it takes to produce those materials, to get those materials to the job site, um, the amount of energy it takes to run all of the equipment on the job site, um, all of the tools, things like that. Um, so when you take all of that into account, the carbon footprint for construction is a lot bigger uh, than a lot of people realize. And a lot of people just don't think about it because they don't, you know, a lot of our listeners are probably going to be hearing embodied carbon for the first time um so you know mark is definitely super well versed in the topic um i really enjoyed this episode i learned a lot and uh you know there's some good lessons that hopefully people take and implement uh, on their projects yeah i agree i mean i'd heard before things like um the carbon footprint of food i mean you hear a lot about how car, uh, cows have a bigger carbon footprint because of how much grass they need and everything to keep them. But you don't really think a whole lot about the building materials that we use and even things from like, how does it get to the job site and how does, how do the workers get to the job site? I mean, some of those things we talked about were stuff I never thought about. So it was definitely cool. Um, so yeah, it was a great episode. Hopefully you get to listen to it, enjoy and check back for more. On today's episode, we have Mark Chen, Senior Sustainability Engineer at Skanska, joining us. How are you doing, man? I'm good. Uh, thanks for having me on the show. I'm excited. How are you guys doing? Doing great. Um, so this is your first podcast, right? First time on a podcast? It is, and I'm a big-time podcast listener, so I was excited when you guys reached out. I was like, oh, this is my chance. <laughs> this is my my chances start them. Well, hopefully we don't set the bar too low, but I, I think this will be a good one. Um, so before we kick it off, I'd really like to just kind of get an understanding kind of, you know, who are you, you know, what do you do? And then really kind of what has guided you onto this path of uh, sustainability as a career path? Yeah. So starting from where I'm from and how I got to where I'm at today, um, Southern California native. I grew up in the Pasadena area. Um, and I think growing up in LA um, gave me this kind of visceral experience around sustainability, just with air quality and drought and water conservation measures. So from an early age, um, I really had this kind of value ingrained about it because I was, you know, seeing it and experiencing it almost on a daily basis sometimes. Um, so from there, I went to the University of Washington here in Seattle, uh, got my degree in civil engineering. Um, and for a long time, I wanted to be a structural engineer. Um, and, you know, I had a few internships and kind of learned more about myself and realized, you know, maybe structural engineering wasn't exactly the route I wanted to take. Um, and from there, I decided, you know, construction management and general contracting seemed um, more of my, my cup of tea. So um, I started with a large commercial general contractor right out of college, um, worked in their pre-construction group, 
and also spent some time as a project engineer on um, some TI renovations. So really got my, my feet wet in the whole construction industry and um, how things operate there. Um, and really the whole time, you know, my entire experience working for a general contractor, you know, I would either be working on something in pre-construction or would be out in the field on site as a project engineer. And I would always, you know, say to myself, like, there are better ways to do this. There are so many things that could be done to kind of improve the way construction companies operate on a sustainability level. And so I, I really got passionate about it because of that, because I, I saw this opportunity, this tangible opportunity of, you know, all these waste dumpsters being hauled off site, all this fuel being burned on site for our um, construction activity. Um, so I got really involved with different sustainability groups, organizations outside of the company. Um, you know, eventually I, I met Stacy Smedley, who is our Skanska Director of Sustainability, and she um, reached out one day and there was a, a job opening at Skanska to do sustainability full-time, which by then I had realized, you know, that's kind of where I wanted my career path to go because I had developed a real passion for it. Um, so that's, that's kind of how I arrived where I'm at now with Skanska, um, with our sustainability, sustainability team um, here in Seattle. And yeah, I guess the, uh, the rest is history now. Key talking about um, being on the construction site and seeing all of the waste that just gets built up. It really just struck a chord with me because at my school, um, you know, <laughs> we had to do like a semester long internship and move away and, you know, find out what it's like to work full time on a construction site. And um, one of my primary responsibilities was, um, you know, waste management on the job via picking up trash and placing it in the dumpster. And I was amazed by how much waste there was on the construction site and how, you know, the last job I was on, we had two full dumpsters a day getting hauled off, probably to a landfill. None of that material was getting reused. It was just being wasted. And, you know, that's kind of what led me to, you know, try to research how recycling in the industry you know, would be really advantageous. You know, I, I know like through methods like prefabrication, they're already kind of starting to do that um, or at least being more efficient with material usage. Um, but, you know, it's something that really, there's not a spotlight on it quite yet. And when I was researching this topic on embodied carbon, I wasn't even thinking about you know, the full life cycle of materials and the amount of um, carbon that gets produced just by trucks driving that, um, you know, material to the job site. Yeah, absolutely. And the other thing that I always um, observed was a lot of the waste that ends up in our dumpsters is probably usable for someone. Um, you think about all the dimensional lumber and woodwood wood ends up in construction dumpsters. You know, a lot of that can be clean, you know, a six foot long two by four. Um, someone out there could probably use that, whether it's a low income housing group or just someone trying to buy lumber, which, you know, recently has been astronomical in price for their home improvement. So, um, yeah, number one is trying to reduce waste. And then two is trying to find the best kind of end market for that, that waste stream. There's absolutely so much you can do with that that also overlaps with you know community and um, things outside of just sustainability and landfill diversion i think this is an interesting topic and i know um jackson's been excited because he's talked about amount of waste getting pulled off a job site in multiple episodes and so it kind of is the culmination here in this episode but um you know and before we kind of dive into this idea of like what embodied carbon is or whatnot um, I do think that it's interesting you mentioned the somebody can use that material because there's um, there's a building here in Atlanta on Georgia Tech's campus that I think it was a Green Globe uh, project. Um, I don't know if Skanska was involved in that one or not, but they uh, they partnered with a local organization that all they do is collect waste and material for recycling, and it's like this huge warehouse in downtown Atlanta that you could go through 
and uh you know there's just doors and stair everything you can imagine and it's interesting to see how people are using that um, early on in the design phase so you're teeing me up perfectly for a little skanska plug shameless plug but um we just finished the candida building on the georgia tech campus that's it so um jimmy mitchell shout out jimmy with our atlanta team skanska atlanta team he actually was one of the founders of that reuse center um so really cool story there. And then I know for the, um, the floor diaphragm framing, Jimmy worked with some local organizations to source, I think it was salvaged lumber from, um, it was a film studio. They just had a bunch of clean lumber that was used for, you know, making sets. Um, and they basically used that lumber as a spacer in the floor diaphragm. Um, so they basically got I don't want to say free material, but, you know, this reused material incorporated into the structure of the building. And they also hired, um, this is the part of the story that I don't want to speak too much on because I don't know a ton about it, but I know they hired some, um, I can't remember if, if it was at-risk labor or um, kind of low-income folks from the Atlanta area to actually put these panels, these floor panels together. So it had a really great story all the way across the board, whether it was sustainability or community or um, equity, all of that good stuff. So it's a yeah. cool building. Um, I, I went to Georgia Tech. So when I was on campus um, and I, I toured it when it opened and I mean, it's, it's amazing just in general. And then like all of the you know, different points that they had to get in order to achieve um, what they were going after. And then when I started reading more about how they did the recyclable material, it all started to click and, you know, it really took, cause I think even like Lord Eck was one of the architects that worked on it. And, um, you know, I, there was a lot of effort that went into the design up front to take that challenge on, uh, coordinating obviously with Skanska to, to make it happen, but it's a really cool project. Um, and, uh, is worth anyone that, you know, comes to Atlanta should absolutely go see it. Cause there's so much inside. And as you kind of walk through it, you almost learn a little bit about the different stages of what they were trying to achieve, which I thought was a pretty nice touch. Mark, you know how I know you listen to a lot of podcasts. You said shameless plug. And also, <laughs> I'm going to take it a step further. Mark, you are now a friend of the show. Oh, <laughs> or a friend of the pod, I mean. <laughs> so I, I do... <laughs> yeah. So I do want to take it a step back um, for the people who are hearing us talk about this, who are saying, what is embodied carbon? Yeah, what is it? Absolutely. So embodied carbon is defined as all of the energy and specifically carbon emissions associated with the manufacturing of a particular material. So like concrete, as an example, all of the emissions associated with extracting the raw material from the earth. So like limestone for cement, um, transporting that material to like a cement manufacturing plant, the emissions associated with turning that limestone into cement, um, all the energy and the, um, the actual chemical reaction that's associated with uh, turning limestone into cement. Um, and then also getting that cement to the concrete ready mix plant, everything that goes into actually mixing all the concrete with the cement, the aggregate, the water, any admixtures. And then also getting that concrete to our job sites and then also installing that concrete, um, like pouring concrete, uh, placing the concrete for whatever application it's being used for. So that kind of encompasses embodied carbon. It's really the upfront emissions associated with getting a product or material installed on one of our many construction sites. You know, I'm curious to get your thoughts on this as we start to talk about how we can actually reduce it. But I read when I was doing some research that as an industry as a whole, we've, we've focused a lot. Well, what, what amount of time we have spent on climate change has been more on the operational energy consumption. So heating and, you know, daylighting, cooling, water consumption, all of that. But it was saying that there's been a less of an emphasis on the embodied carbon part until maybe recently. And do you feel like that's true? Yeah, definitely. So um, again, a shout out to Stacy, our director of sustainability. She was doing studies with 
University of Washington Carbon Leadership Forum on this, you know, years ago. And the reason, to your point, why it became such an, an important conversation was because, you know, here in Seattle, a lot of our electricity comes from hydro. So it's very clean. Um, we don't have a lot of emissions associated with, you know, burning kilowatt hours in the Seattle area. And because of that, when you're actually looking at the full life cycle of a building and incorporating the embodied carbon, you know, Stacy and the UW group were finding that there is actually a huge, huge, huge proportion of the building's total emissions coming from the embodied carbon side of it, you know, up to like when you're incorporating the entire life cycle over like a 30 year time window, it was still like 80% of the emissions were coming from the embodied carbon and only 20% were coming from your operational emissions. So that's what made the light bulb go off in a lot of people's heads, especially with clients we work with here in the Washington market who have a lot of value around, you know, taking responsibility for their carbon emissions. Um, so that's kind of the backstory and why people are really starting to pay attention to it now. It was kind of a, a blind spot for the industry for a long time. So um, I was reading, it may have actually been, I mean, it was written by Skanska, so it may have been um, the director of sustainability, but it was talking about kind of ways that we can reduce embodied carbon and it lists a bunch of stuff. And I'd like to kind of go through all these different ways, because I'm sure if people may be listening or, you know, they're interested in climate change, sustainability, but there's always like the, how do I get started? You know, it always feels overwhelming. You, you kind of get the sense of like, I by myself can't change stuff, all of those type of things that people run into. So when we talk about um, reducing embodied carbon, where do we start? Like, what's the first thing, you know, I know there's like a laundry list of stuff we, we can go through, but what is the first thing we want to focus on? So I think understanding the basics is definitely the starting point. So we just talked about what embodied carbon is generally. So of course, that's the most important first step. Um, I think also understanding that there are a number of different ways to handle embodied carbon. There's no, you know, this is how you need to do it. This is the only way you need to do it. There are um, lots of different tools and methodologies out there that can help address embodied carbon. Um, I will say, again, just from the Skanska side, the EC3 tool, the Embodied Carbon and Construction Calculator tool, um, is a tool that we are using currently um, most often to address embodied carbon. Um, it was a tool that was started by Skanska and Stacy Smedley um, with our Seattle office in partnership with the University of Washington, Microsoft, and plenty of other industry partners. Um, and so that's a great starting point. And from there, it's really understanding kind of how EC3 works, um, what its limitations are and where its strengths are. Um, and then working with your team, you know, if you're in um, a project team, trying to deliver a given project, um, really getting people educated around, again, what embodied carbon is, what the EC3 tool is, how it can be used uh, throughout the design and procurement and construction process to lower embodied carbon. Piggybacking off of that same article that Chris was mentioning, at the very end, it mentioned that um, Skanska's mission right now is to achieve net zero carbon emissions by 2045. Uh, can you speak a little on that? Yes. Yeah, so, you know, I think that commitment is, um, it's ambitious, obviously. It's very, very ambitious. And so that 2045 carbon neutrality commitment um, not only includes Skanska's own direct scope one and two emissions, if we're talking geeky emissions accounting, carbon emissions accounting talk, um, but it also includes our, you know, quote unquote value chain. So that includes our supply chain, which also incorporates our embodied carbon. So even if this was just Skanska's own direct emissions, it would be an ambitious target. But now that we're also including the supply chain and the embodied carbon, it is a, a big time, big time um, effort for us here at Skanska to get to that point. Um, and the scary part is 2045, you know, really isn't that, that far away. away. <laughs> <laughs> um, we have an interim 2030 commitment of a 50% reduction just for our direct emissions, doesn't include supply chain or embodied carbon. And, you know, here internally, we're, we're looking at the calendar and going, holy cow, this is nine years away. Um, so lots of work to be done. But I also think, again, with the EC3 tool, the power of the EC3 tool, which 
I'm sure we'll get into some of the details on this podcast in a little bit, but it gives the general public visibility into the emissions of different companies and manufacturers that we're using. So with that transparency, the hope is that it will drive some market transformation because all of a sudden, you know, if I'm manufacturer A and I realize that folks like Skanska and other industry partners are realizing that manufacturer B, my competitor, um, can provide the same product for a much lower carbon footprint, um, that becomes a competitive advantage for manufacturer B. So for me as manufacturer A, I'm going to start looking at my operations more closely. Um, and that's kind of where the, the market transformation part of it comes into play, or at least that's the intent. Um, because we're not going to get to that 2045 goal unless we have the entire industry brought in. Um, there's just no way it's going to happen without, again, the, the hashtag market transformation. The uh, It kind of aligns to, I was looking up the World Green Building Council has sort of set out a similar statement where it was uh, 2030, they were going to, it was 40% less. And then 2050 was um, completely net neutrality. But it, it is kind of crazy because, I mean, I remember we had conversations a couple of years ago and talking about like the, you know, the architecture 2030 challenge and all these things. It seems so far away. And yet here we are. And um, you know, regardless of opinions, things are getting more intense. I mean, we're dealing with, we're recording this right as there's like a historical hurricane hitting this, you know, Louisiana and we're dealing with wildfires out West. And so it's kind of getting to that tipping point of like, it's not a matter of, do we want to, but it is pretty critical. So I appreciate y'all's intent to, you know, try to hit those. So as other company, you know, so we say, okay, Hey, we want to, we want to reduce carbon emissions. And we recognize that we have these tools, say like EC3. And, and it seems that obviously so much is dependent on the material. Um, so, you know, what are we doing or what are you seeing uh, firms doing? Because I mean, this goes all the way down to the, the design at the very beginning, because, you know, schematic design. Um, we're designing projects with materials, a lot of times not even engaging you as the contractor yet. You know, what are things we need to be thinking about on the design side to help sort of make our way to what would ultimately be reduced uh, carbon? Yeah, so someone made this um, kind of analogy a while back and it all stuck with me. But right now with embodied carbon, it feels like we're in the, the turn the lights off phase of where we were at with energy efficiency maybe a decade or two ago where um, we're just starting to understand the data and the methodology to actually quantify, even just you know quantify embodied carbon. So right now, a lot of the focus, the low-hanging fruit is just um, kind of the intuitive stuff, similar to, you know, if you think about energy efficiency, like one of the things you can do is just turn off the light when you don't need to. Um, it's kind of the same concept with embodied carbon. How can we design or how can you know our structural engineers and architects design to reduce just the amount of material that we're using on a given project? You know, that's probably the most elementary and intuitive um, step you can take. Uh, you know, on our end with Skanska, just being a general contractor, um, we're looking for ways to reduce the cement content of our mixes, um, be more efficient with our materials where we can help it. Because um, really just like waste, energy, water, whatever it might be, um, the best first step is to just reduce your impact. Um, reducing the amount of material resources that you're using is always the most sustainable strategy. Um, so that's probably the, the best starting point. Um, and from there, it kind of goes into, once you get past that point of the turn the lights off, that's where you start to look at um, different products and different innovations and technologies that are hitting the market currently that can further drive down that reduction. Um, but there are some you know, very basic things you can do to lower your embodied carbon uh, right off the bat. The AEC Disruptors podcast is brought to you by Applied Software. With solutions for the modern project, Applied Software is on a mission to transform industries by empowering clients and champion innovation with real-world expert consultants. Their comprehensive array of solutions for the AEC, MEP, and manufacturing has a singular focus, helping you achieve higher performance. With software, training, support, consulting, and custom development, 
Applied Software has you covered. Visit ASTI.com and let them know we sent you. I can imagine how like on the, again, you know, my background being architecture, when I think about on the design side, we talk on, we've had episodes we, in the industry, we're seeing computational design pop up a lot. Um, and a lot of people are using it for, you know, just whatever they need to use it for. Um, but something I don't see using it a lot is thinking of it from an aspect of how can we use it to potentially help us guide to reduce material. It kind of starts to play on the idea of using um, these type of technologies in manufacturing when we're doing like additive or subtractive type of manufacturing and seeing how much material can we take away from something. So I'd be curious to see if it's something that a lot of our, you know, our peers in the, on the design side can start to use the tools that we already have in place to look at ways of reducing the material ahead of time. Because I don't know if a lot of firms, or unless they're going for lead or you know the Green Globe or whatever, I'm not sure that's always the forefront. You know, it's more aesthetics, and then there obviously is cost. But sometimes I think the carbon maybe what gets missed. Yeah, and I think even outside of just tools, there's some system level decisions early on in design that can be made around reducing your overall material quantities. So mass timber feels like this hot topic right now. Um, and we could do a whole another podcast around mass timber and the, the carbon pros and cons with mass timber. Um, but even like take all of the, you know, talk around biogenic carbon, the carbon sequestered in wood and the benefits of that over concrete and steel. Um, you know, I think I, I've seen case studies where, you know, using mass timber, obviously it's, it's a beautiful product. You want to showcase it. Um, and if you can achieve this with your project, um, you know, a lot of the times your mass timber structure is going to be open structure. You know, there's, you're not going to want to wrap your columns in drywall. You're not gonna to want to have all these fancy ceiling finishes because you want to expose that beautiful um, wood product. And so that's one thing that can also result in, um, it's kind of an, a secondary benefit, but because of that, you're reducing all these other finishes that you would otherwise be putting in your building if it was concrete or steel. So that's just an example off the top of my head. Um, you know, obviously using the EC3 tools, another way to quantify those kinds of um, decisions. But of course, there's other tools out there like Tally. Um, I know the Athena Impact Estimator is another, I believe, free tool that you can use. Um, but that's where it gets complicated. There's so many different materials that go into a building. There are literally millions of different um, I guess permutations, if you want to call it that, of what you can do to kind of reduce your overall material quantities in a building. So what, where does, um, so how does the EC3 tool come into play? Is it coming into play on the design side early front, or is it, uh, you know, you as the contractor using it after it's been designed? I mean, where does that start to fall in? So ideally, the EC3 tool is really geared around kind of mid to late design. So once you're in DDs and CDs, and then definitely once you're in the procurement phase, the buyout phase, and then the construction phase. Um, and so I guess for the listeners too, just so everyone knows, the EC3 tool is very much, um, I don't wanna say limited, but the boundaries are drawn very distinctly. Um, EC3 only includes your raw material extraction through manufacturing emissions and nothing else. So if you wanna take into account a full life cycle analysis, the EC3 tool is not the tool to use because um, it only accounts for those early upfront emissions. Um, so, you know, all that being said, um, it really is the ideal use of the EC3 tool is in design, but also once your contractor is engaged, ideally, um, because a lot of the power of EC3 comes at the contractor level um, when we're going to buy, you know, different bid packages out. So in the past, you know, when um, BIM started to come to the industry, adoption didn't really happen until owners started requiring it. And it sounds like for, you know, this mission to reduce the embodied carbon, um, 
the onus is on the designers as well as the contractors who are actually building the building. Um, do you think, who do you think is going to be the primary driver behind, um, you know, getting to net zero? Yeah, I think you hit it on the head. Um, I think the owners, like with almost everything, drive a lot of the change. Um, you know, not to say that the general contractor can't create that movement or the architect or engineer or consultants, but um, I think on the ownership side, having companies and public entities that value um, carbon emissions and reducing carbon emissions definitely kind of mobilizes the rest of the industry to follow suit. Um, I also think policy will be a big part of driving the change that we need. Um, I know in California, there's already legislation around embodied carbon uh, through the Buy Clean California Act. So um, just from that alone, um, there's going to be a lot of companies out there trying to figure out what this embodied carbon thing is and how they expect to comply with California legislation. Um, on public projects in the future. What do you think are some, you know, immediate steps that people can take today on their job site to try to reduce their carbon footprint? I would say the first step would be education. Um, so educating the full project team on what it is, why it's important, um, especially if it's a project team that's going for any kind of lead certification or if it's an owner that um, you know, values the energy efficiency of their building. Because if you, if you really do care about just the end um, goal around carbon emissions, then embodied carbon definitely needs to be part of the, the equation. Um, but outside of that, so once you, because the education part of it right now, just with how kind of new the concept is, it's um, probably the most important step. Because, I mean, we, you know, I'm not saying it's a bad thing, it's actually a good thing, but when we talk to a lot of our trade partners, a lot of our suppliers, um, even some of our you know, design teams about embodied carbon, um, honestly, more often than not, we kind of get the deer in a headlights look because no one's really, you know, there's one lead pilot credit around it, but it's really not fully integrated into lead. Um, it's just not something a lot of people have heard of. So again, once you get through that education phase, uh, I think creating some tangible um, goals for the project is really important so that everyone universally has some kind of goal to work towards. Um, and outside of that, using the tools that we have now, like the EC3 tool, it's a public open source tool. Anybody can sign up for an account and access the data within the tool right now. Um, and really leveraging the data to at least understand where we're at and see where, um, you know, you can turn the lights off, like we kind of alluded to earlier. Because um, there's always low hanging fruit. It's just a matter of finding where that fruit is. Yeah, some of the things that come to mind are, you know, start putting recycling bins at the job site because, you know, people eat lunch at the job site. There's plastic water bottles going in the same dumpster where, you know, drywall pieces are going. Um, and another thing is, you know, a cool idea would be maybe a solar powered charging station for tools, like things like that, I think would be um, pretty cool. That's an interesting one um, that you brought up the food thing. Um, Cause I was reading, it, it may seem small, but one of the things that there's a lot of waste around is, everyone eats lunch, everyone has their water bottles, and there's a lot of people on the job site, and it goes on for an extended period of time, and, and it actually specifically called out um, in an article talking about embodied carbon was the individual's uh, lunch waste and, and accounting for that. Um, so the, you know, it seems like the education point, I think, makes a lot of sense, because like if I'm the designer, I'm choosing a certain material, I could try to reduce it. But, you know, something else that comes up is based on the material I choose, there's embodied carbon um, in the transportation of it, is it not? So, you know, can you speak to, I guess it's not just um, the material transportation, but even, I guess, in some places, the transportation of the, the workers. How does transportation start to have a play into reducing embodied carbon? 
Yeah, that's a great question. So um, like I mentioned with EC3, the boundaries are set so that actually currently that transportation from like the manufacturing plant or the fabrication facility to the job site is not included in EC3 right now. Um, I know the team is working on that and having a plugin to incorporate that, um, but it's not part of the publicly accessible tool right now. So this is another part of what Skanska has been working on um, for the last couple of years. Um, because really it's come down to us tracking this with all of our trade partners, because for the most part, um, you know, a lot of our work is subcontracted. So all of our material deliveries to site, all of that transportation that you just talked about, craft workers, really anything to do with vehicles coming onto our job sites, the lion's share of all those emissions are coming from our subcontracted work. Um, so we've created kind of a, on a few projects with clients that were on board with with doing this, we've created a methodology to track that on a monthly basis. Um, and I think, you know, if you're a, a general contractor or any kind of construction company out there um, and want to get involved and um, start tracking your transportation emissions, uh, my biggest, I guess, piece of advice is that there is probably data out there that is already being tracked that can help you get that information. Um, so we've developed these different reporting um, cadences with our subs where they'll send us their monthly list of deliveries. We've created this spreadsheet that basically we just copy and paste that data in. It does the calculations and out pops our carbon emissions footprint. Um, but there are some trades who, you know, if you think about our structural steel fabricator, whoever it might be, there's lots of deliveries that might be coming to site in a given month. So we leverage things that we were already tracking internally. Um, like for lots of our projects, we have just for logistics and for our superintendents, they're already tracking scheduled deliveries to the job site because we need to do that. We can't have five delivery trucks showing up at once, bottlenecking the entire um, you know, construction entrance. So on lots of our larger jobs, we have that kind of regimented and scheduled um, delivery uh, process. So we've been able to just pull from that um, kind of data source that our superintendents are keeping to then um, create the roadmap for the reporting that we need to track material deliveries. Um, and so again, it's kind of all been in-house um, developed calculations and methodologies to quantify those emissions and then look at opportunities where we can see reductions um, but it has been really, really fascinating to track where our materials are even coming from, because um, most people don't even think about it. Um, you know, a lot of our structural steel, what we found out is a lot of the big structural steel mills are all based in the Midwest or the Southeast, which when you actually think about it, isn't that surprising? So when you think about getting structural steel to a job site here in Washington, there's a lot of travel distance involved with that. Um, so just on that level, it's been really interesting to take a closer look at where materials are coming from, how far are they coming to the job from, what mode of transportation are they coming from, what's the fuel that's being used by the trucks or whatever vehicles transporting to the job site. Um, yeah, there's a whole another kind of art form and science behind tracking the transportation side of it. Yeah, I was curious because coming from the subcontractor perspective um, and my last project was a downtown one, so deliveries, you know, it had to be scheduled out and it happened, had to happen in a certain amount of time because you were using the crane and things like that. But it seemed like no matter what we were getting, whether it be a fan, air handling unit, um, a rack of pipe, it was a different delivery company. And the truck would sit there for, you know, sometimes 30 minutes to an hour just idling, you know while we're trying to get the material out and it's just all that wasted energy right there. Um, and another thing, um, you know, another thing, another task I had on my internship was getting gas for all of our pieces of equipment. <laughs> um, so I was, are, are you seeing equipment companies start to try to adopt, um, you know, maybe like, like electrical means um, for their equipment rather than gas or maybe alternative energy resources? Yeah, absolutely. So 
when it comes to equipment fuel burn on site, um, yes, we've seen manufacturers and kind of the market starting to, I mean, just like, you know, the, the vehicle market, the trendy topic now is electrification. So we have seen new models coming onto the market that are fully electrified, tele telehandler forklifts, um, things like that. Um, and we've like our Skanska yard, um, which, you know, maintains a lot of our own Skanska equipment. We've, we've looked at electrified equipment um, as of even this past year. Um, it feels like the battery technology is right on the cusp, but not quite where we need it. Um, because the last thing we can afford to do is roll out a big um, electrified mobile crane that can only get five hours of work out of the eight hour workday before it needs to be recharged. So we need to make sure the productivity can be there, the battery storage can be there before we really make the investment um, into those electrified engines and electrified pieces of equipment. Um, so what we have been looking at in the interim while we wait for kind of the market to shift and for the technology to scale, um, there are alternative fuels out there. Um, you know, most people have probably heard of biodiesel, but there is another different fuel out on the market called renewable diesel. Um, it meets the same ASTM specification as your standard petroleum diesel, um, but it has great emissions benefits. Um, on a tailpipe emissions factor, it's over a 90% reduction compared with uh, standard diesel. Um, so we've been really hot on the trail for that fuel type for a lot of our equipment. Uh, we've been using it in a lot of our um, machines in our LA market, um, our Skanska Civil Los Angeles projects. Um, we've also started to look at it here in Washington, Oregon, kind of in the West Coast for the most part. Um, so that's kind of been our, um, our stepping stone to one day get to fully electrified job sites is looking at cleaner fuels um, outside of your standard diesel or gas. Um, and the other great benefit about renewable diesel too is that we don't have to swap any of our equipment. We don't have to make any modifications to the engine. It's a drop and ready fuel. You know, unlike biodiesel, if you start to get above like a 20% biodiesel blend, you start to affect um, engine performance, um, warranty, all that kind of stuff. Um, and on top of that, the even better part about renewable diesel for our maintenance teams is that because it's supposed to burn cleaner, um, you spend less time actually cleaning out the diesel particulate filters. Um, you have less of those regen cycles for your engines. So um, all in all, that fuel has been kind of our... I guess the closest thing to like a silver bullet for us for dramatic emissions reduction for not that much effort. Do you see um, robotics, autonomous vehicle type things aiding in the reduction on the fuel cost, or do you think that would actually drive it up? Ooh, that is a great question. And I'm really torn on my answer um, because I think robotics could solve a lot of our problems and help with a lot of the sustainability goals that we have. At the same time, having been on job sites before and worked with all of our trade partners, I know there's a hesitancy to go that route for the most part because you know that's job security for a lot of our, our craft folk who we, we especially now absolutely need more of um, mm -hmm. to help us build. So I, I guess it depends on the application. Um, yeah, it's hard to have you know a, a blanket response because there's so many different ways you could use robotics. Um, and I just think there's probably lots of intended benefits, but maybe some unintended um, consequences too that I just, I don't know what I don't know. And that's what I was actually wondering about would be if you imagine, like if we had a job site where there's 10 folks that are doing things and then we're going to replace, um, I mean, replace sounds harsh, but five of them become a robot does those tasks. That's now five electrical things that are consuming some type of fuel that didn't exist before. So I'd be curious if, you know, there's this big push for, automation and robotics and all that stuff is, are we going to see an influx in our carbon emissions 
in an attempt to automate and increase our productivity. That's another great question that I've actually never really thought about before. Um, I wish I had a good answer, but I don't. I just uh, made it up. <laughs> yeah, I just, I don't, I don't even know what the, like if we had a robotic, uh, I know some of our like drywall partners have started using robotic um, like layout machines where they can mm -hmm. lay out walls um, with a robot. But I, I have no idea what the energy usage for a full day of work for one of those um, robots is. So I'll have to chew on that one. I don't know. Are there any emerging materials other than mass timber um, that excite you going forward? Yeah, so, um, you know, concrete is such an integral part of infrastructure and society. It's going to be near impossible, I think, to ever get away from concrete completely. So there are some really interesting technologies with concrete that are, um, you know, we've been doing some research around it. Lots of other companies have been doing research around it, um, mainly around cement replacement. Um, so there are things like, uh, like ground glass pozzolan. So basically you can take waste glass, um, grind it up to a certain specification standard, and that can actually serve as uh, a replacement to cement. Um, obviously, that has a much lower carbon footprint than mining limestone from the earth and turning that into cement. Um, so that's a really interesting one that I'm excited about. Um, I'm trying to think what else, um, just with some of our other materials. I've, I've heard, it seems like everything progressive seems to start in Europe, but I've heard of hydrogen powered um, steel mills that can manufacture steel with zero emissions. Um, and I think there is a company in the US that I talked to them a while ago. It sounded like they weren't gonna be operational until 2025. So we're a little bit a ways out from getting there, but there are companies with steel specifically that are looking into technologies that can help um, really drastically lower the embodied carbon of steel production. Um, outside of that, I know there are some like cellulose bio-based insulation products um, that have a lot of great benefits over um, your standard uh, plastic-based or um, mineral-based insulation. Uh, but again, I just think it seems like that's right now more geared towards the single-family residential market. It hasn't quite scaled to the commercial market. Um, yeah, lots of interesting products. There's carpet products now that have a near carbon neutral um, carpet backing. Um, some really interesting stuff going on in the manufacturing world around this. But again, a lot of it has to do with, is it scalable so that we, Skanska or another large project could actually source it um, on, you know, a $500 or five, $500, $500 million project because um, that's where the big impact is. And I would hope as time goes on, just like anything, the cost to generate goes down, the ability to mass produce and mass customize goes up. Um, and like you said, it really does take the whole supply chain because I mean, the manufacturing, building manufacturers, those plants are just as important. I mean, no matter what you do, a lot depends on what they do and how they transport the materials and how they create the materials. And so it does seem like education seems to be probably the best, best way as we kind of wrap up. And I think you kind of alluded to it, you know, somebody wanted to start their sustainability journey today, you know, what's the first thing they should do? Um, they should reach out to Skanska and make sure Skanska is hired for any project that they're doing. <laughs> I like it. Uh, just kidding. Um, who that is. There's so many different avenues that I'm going through in my head right now. Um, I think, and this is one thing that we've been talking about internally here in the Washington office, but survey your employees and your peers and see what matters to them. Um, because like we just talked about, 
one person can't change the market or change the way a company operates. Having your team or your company as a whole bought in is what will create change. So um, like even for us in the Washington office, you know, we sent out a survey to our entire office staff um, and just asked them like between climate change, energy efficiency, waste, water, um, ecological preservation, like what matters to you? Like sustainability is such a large, there's so much that falls under the umbrella of sustainability that if you try and address all of it, you're just going to burn out. Um, and so when it comes to, yes, yeah, starting like within your own company, just understanding what your peers care about is kind of what will help you, I think, um, dictate what you focus on. Um, so for us, like our staff, a lot of our staff here in the Washington office, a lot of them said climate change was what mattered most to them. So now everything we're doing, not everything, but a lot of what we're doing is centered around that because we want our employees to be engaged with it. We want our employees to feel like that they have a voice in all this because that's another part of the whole discussion is that um, I think we need to have everyone's voice heard throughout the process in order to really change the, um, the attitude and the paradigm. I think it's a great first step. Mark, we've uh, really appreciated you joining us for this. It's been fun. Yeah, likewise. Thanks for having me on. Thank you, Mark. Thanks for listening to the AEC Disruptors podcast. Enjoy this episode. Leave us a rating or review while sharing with your friends and coworkers. I'd love to hear from you. Send me a LinkedIn request or follow our LinkedIn page and let me know if there's a topic you'd like to hear. You can listen to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Thanks for listening. The AEC Disruptors is directed by Christopher Riddell, produced by Todd Wyant, edited by Eric Daniel, and co-hosted by Jackson Sensat. The AEC Disruptors is an applied software production, copyright applied software 2021.